0: What is up my friends welcome back to another episode of the co-working weekly show as always I'm your host Alex Hillman and this week we're doing things a little bit differently I went on the 21st century work life podcast hosted by Pilar Ortiz who runs a little consultancy called virtual not distant the reason I know Pilar is she was one of our speakers for the people at work summit back in April didn't get a chance to get her on the podcast but she invited me on hers and we had a really interesting conversation So with her permission, I got a copy of that interview and we're going to be playing it back in today's episode. Now, this is a little bit different from my usual podcast appearances in some cases because P.L.R. is both a member of a co-working space as well as an expert in the world of virtual work and sort of connections between teams of people who are not physically in the same place. So like myself, her interests are very much in people and interactions both in the physical space as well as online. So we talked a lot about those kinds of things and the role of co-working in those kinds of interactions. More about co-working the verb and less about physical places and how people actually work together in co-working spaces. And she's got some really cool examples of her own experience, including a co-working network that's taking place in a library system in, I believe it's in East London, as well as the fact that co-working at this point means lots of different things to lots of different people and how we are navigating that. We went into all different interesting corners of the conversation. So, whether you're looking at co working from the perspective of how people work together, or you're someone coming from the real estate side of things, trying to figure out what role physical place does play in these personal and interpersonal interactions in a world where we're heading towards people being able to work from all different kinds of places, there's something in this episode for you. Pilar was an awesome host. I had a really fun time in this interview, and I'm really thankful that she let me share this with you. I'm going to encourage you to keep listening. And when you're done you can go check out other episodes of her podcast at virtualnotdistant.com enjoy this episode
1: so alex is in a cafe i'm at home we're really embracing the 21st century work life Uh, yes i am delighted to be able to talk again this time with uh, pressing the recording button to alex hillman from indie hall hello alex
2: Hi, Pilar. How are you?
1: Yes, I am good. I'm a bit rushed today. So um, if I speak too fast, then do do feel free to say slow down, Pilar.
2: (laughs) I I will just do my best to keep up.
1: (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, Alex, uh, of course, you were introduced. um, Well, we were were introduced by Bernie Mitchell. So another thank you to Bernie on this podcast. Uh, Could you, I think the best thing is, is... uh, um, yeah, how did you meet uh, how did you meet Bernie and and what's the connection? I think if you can uh, tell us that, that'll be Sure, yeah, be sure. Nice.
2: So I I'm always reminded by Bernie whenever we speak uh that we we met on the steps of uh the Co-working Europe conference in Lisbon, I believe it was, um a couple of years ago. Um and then more recently, uh, I was visiting London for a workshop series that i was a part of uh and bernie and i got to go hang out and he got to show me some of his favorite parts of london uh 90 Mainyard, the co-working space that he works in uh and go out for some delicious thai food or indian food i can't remember <laughs> um but i finally got to actually like spend some time hanging out with bernie we've gotten to know each other better uh over the last uh you know n- six to nine months or so and Good dude, super connector. Uh, obviously, he's part of the reason you and I are talking, but he's everyone in Bernie's introduced me to has been so interesting and thoughtful and uh, it's, you know, it's just a reflection of Bernie, who Bernie is and the network that he's built, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, so if you want to meet cool people, Hang out with Bernie. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's, that's good advice.
1: <laughs> and one of the uh, reasons for that connection also is uh, you, of course, run a co-working space. That's uh, true. Tell us a bit about Indie Hall, because I don't know that much about it except from what I've been picking up.
2: Sure, sure. So, uh, Indie Hall is a co-working community that I started uh, almost ten years ago. It'll be ten years uh, this September. So, uh, in the world of co-working and things that have become called co-working, uh, we're we're sort of a a dinosaur uh, in in an ecosystem that's uh, still young and growing and evolving, which is really exciting. So, uh, what exactly Indie Hall is and does, and how it's evolved, and and maybe also what sets us apart from a lot of other co-working spaces. Now, Pilar, I know you work in in a co-working space and actually potentially multiple co-working spaces. Is that right? Uh,
1: Well, I am based and now I'm mainly based at the workery, which is in Chiswick. So I used to pop in and out of the hub in King's Cross, which is, of course, one of the pioneers in London. Yes. Uh, and, And now we're, well... I hang out in two co-working spaces, the physical one in London Chiswick and the virtual team talk one in uh, Sokoko online. <laughs>
2: okay, so, so what you just said is actually super relevant to sort of what Indie Hall is and I think what sets it apart. Um, a lot of people think of a co-working space when they think of co-working. And I think of co-working as more about the action, the verb, the intentional choice to be around other people instead of being by yourself. And I don't think that that requires being in the same physical space. The Sokoko group that you're in and the Slack chat that's associated with it, I think is a a choice to be around other people instead of being completely isolated. So 10 years ago, when I quit my job to become a freelancer, I was doing uh, web development. I loved freedom and flexibility and choice, being able to choose what I worked on, where I worked, when I worked, who I worked with. But I missed having coworkers. I missed having that collection of people around me to bounce ideas off of, to learn things from, to constantly be improving. And I wanted a way to recreate that without having to go back to an agency and without having to create an agency of my own. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so. Indie Hall evolved and grew really out of that effort of trying to find people. Now, there's another interesting thing that um, uh, imagining you've got listeners from from all over the world. You're in, in the UK. I'm here in Philadelphia. And wherever you are, I, it's pretty common to feel like you might be one of only a few people who does the kind of work that you do or thinks the way that you think in your city, in your town, in your place. And again, 10 years ago, I looked around the landscape in Philadelphia, what was in my field of vision. And I felt very disconnected from Philadelphia. I felt like it was easier to find like-minded people almost anywhere other than Philadelphia uh, than it was in my own backyard. And so uh, there's sort of a one-two step here. Step one was I actually very honestly thought about leaving Philadelphia to go to somewhere like the Bay Area where I knew that people that made things on the internet were and they hung out. It was very easy to find them there. And I'm very glad that I didn't, but that's for another day. Uh, and, And instead I decided to look look harder in my own backyard and say, well, if I can find one person, then there's a pretty good chance I can find two. And if I can find two people, there's an even better chance I can find four. And so Indie Hall really started as that, that community building effort of one-on-one connections and then bringing those connections together one by one and then in small groups and, and so on and so on. So 10 years later, that's evolved into hundreds of members, lots of different forms, online, offline, in an actual co-working space uh, here in Old City, Philadelphia, um, and and all kinds of interesting ways that people who don't need to work together choose to work together. And I think that's the fundamental that, that whenever I'm talking about Indy Hall, I, I really try and make clear, is it's not about needing a desk. It's not even about needing a place to work. You said, you're, you're at home, I'm in a cafe, I could, I'm gonna go to Indy Hall after this, later in the day I'm gonna be at another cafe, You know, we choose where we work. And if you can choose where you work, why wouldn't you choose the best place for the work around the best people to be surrounded by?
1: I'm glad you mentioned that it's not just about, the, well, it's not about the cheap office space and the good Wi-Fi
0: <laughs> because
1: right. uh, uh, we'll come to that later. But that's, uh, yeah, it's, it is becoming synonymous with that, which is which is really sad. Uh, well, sad or whatever. It's an evolution. I don't think it's uh, it's sad or not. Um, I love your story because it really reminds me, I think I, I mentioned him last time we spoke, uh, David Fletcher from The Workery. Yes. Uh, he also, he was based in, uh, in West London where there are not that many co workers spaces and uh, uh, everything seemed to be east and he thought "Oh, am I going to have to move to the east of London to be able to find a space where I can work with others and uh, no he didn't do that instead he set up the Wimble Tech and now he's taking over <laughs> West London. Um really interesting. And yeah, and similarly the guys from the hub, they were also looking for for a space that they could uh the, where they could be working together, just a space where they could start their startups and there you go. The angel, the hub in angel was born. So I love these stories. <laughs> really. One
2: thing that one thing that I think is super important that that um isn't obvious from our story unless you really go all the way back to the beginning. And I think also ends up setting a very specific precedent for the kind of culture and DNA of that. It's not about the space because it's very easy to say it's not about the space. And then slowly and and almost suspiciously it starts to become about the space and even though you don't want it to it it can easily become that and part of the way that and this was not an intentional choice this is one of those i'm very glad that happenstance took us in this direction because i've now seen the the alternate paths and, and the difference that it can make is that for an entire year before we had a space we weren't seeking a space and i wasn't actually looking for a space at all i was looking for those people and what happens when you've got a bunch of people who are coming together at some sort of semi-regular interval for us it was every week every other week and things like that what you what you end up ending when you end up having is people who want more opportunities to be around each other not necessarily want space and there's a really really subtle but very important difference between people who want to be around each other and people who want a space. Um, and it's, it's a means to an end versus the, the end goal. And and for us, one of the big differences is also when you no longer need the space, when your work situation changes, when you move away, whatever it might be, when you don't need the space anymore, are you going to disassociate with that community or are you going to stay a part of it? And because we started with a community first, and because community first is both an uh, order of operations as well as a mindset, and something we try and help people understand when they're walking in the door for the first time, um, whether that's physically or virtually, that just because you're not in the room doesn't mean you're not a part of this community. And I think the work that you do with online communities and the SoCoCo uh, explorations that you're doing, I think are a perfect ex- example of that and thinking about how can people be a part of a community, be active in a community, even when they're not physically in the room.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I was thinking a couple of things oh. <laughs> uh, One was so so the beginning before you found the physical space what what did that look like to an outsider Were you um sitting in cafes with other people were you uh just talking to other people how did how did that look like right at the beginning
2: so right at the beginning. Uh, so, so we did the things that you just described, but they were r- remarkably later in in the process. Okay. They're a great early thing to do, but you know you can't sit in a cafe with other people if you don't know who the other people are yes, so that was step one is going to find other people who maybe I was like minded with and so you know it's pretty common to think, well, i'm just going to stand in one place and hope somebody that is I share something in common with is going to walk by, and if that's your approach, you're probably going to be sorely disappointed. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of one-on-one outreach, it was going out to events going out to anywhere people were already gathering, whether that was a meetup or a user group or a lecture or a workshop or a cafe or literally anywhere people were gathering that might even be remotely related to the kinds of things that I wanted to do. And I would go out to meet them and find out who they were. And again, not to pitch them anything in particular, but with a genuine interest in finding out who was in my own backyard. I mean, starting from that, I started quite simply making friends. You know, from an outsider perspective, if someone was actually following me around, it probably looked a lot more like dating than networking. (laughs) But that's what I was doing. I was going to an event with an express goal, not to meet as many people as possible, but to make one real genuine connection with somebody that I would think, Wow, I can't wait for the next time I get to spend time with that person, whether, you know, that is at a cafe, maybe I say, "Hey, you know, that conversation we had at such and such meetup was awesome. We could should continue that conversation over a cup of coffee." if that's the offer, the answer is almost always going to be yes. And then that conversation goes from the 15 or 20 minutes that you spoke to that person at an event to an hour over a coffee date. And then it's like, yeah, we definitely need to stay in touch. And once you've had, you know, even three, four, five of those, you start noticing patterns and what those people might have in common that they don't even know of each other. And then you can start connecting the dots between them. We started attending other people's events together. So if I knew I was going to a meetup, I would invite some of those people that I'd met at other meetups say hey i'm going to this thing would you be interested in coming with me and now we're attending other notice we're not producing any of our own events any of our own material it's doing things together it's really really easy and doesn't require any new any new experience any new overhead you can go do things that already exist together and it wasn't until probably 6 or 7 months into doing that that somebody said hey i go to this cafe And it's my favorite cafe to work in. Would anybody like to go do that with me? And that was when I had sort of a light bulb moment. Um, And that was sort of in combination with learning about uh, a thing called Jelly in New York. It was being done in New York City where a couple of guys were inviting their industry friends and strangers into their own apartment to work for the day. So I was like, wait, if Amit and Luke in New York can invite strangers over to their house for the day, what would – stopping me from inviting strangers and relative friends to a cafe that I already like going to? And doing that on a regular interval. And in those situations, even though working in a cafe, you know, is better than working at home alone, um, it, you know, the Wi-Fi is not always the strongest and the you know, barista is like, what are you guys doing here? Um, although we would usually, you know, call ahead and say, hey, we've got a group coming through. Is that going to be okay? Any concerns? Anything we can do to help? Um You know, having a place that we would not have to wait a week or every other week or that sort of thing, or just for somebody to be able to learn about it one day and then not have to wait two weeks to to join our crew, um, was was pretty valuable. And the last thing that sort of glued all that together was a pretty active online community. Um, And there was nothing like Slack or anything like that, Mm. uh, you know, in in ten years ago. Um, But there, obviously IRC, but we were using Google Groups, just email discussion lists, and that was a way for us to learn about things that were going on, share what what we were up to, invite people to go do things with us, ask questions. Uh, And so all the kinds of things that happen in these kinds of communities anyway, we were doing in bits and pieces and fragments and then sort of noticing what worked, noticing what stuck. And then, you know, to use a cliche, doubling down on that and then finding ways to invite other people to that as well.
1: Wow. You know what? You're making me so happy. Because all of this was 10 years ago and it's going so well. And I'm seeing so many parallels with what's happening with virtual team talk.
2: <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. It's it's precisely this thing of, okay, we're, we're, who's doing what? Let's meet them. Let's carry on, meet them. Let's have conversations. And it was then, okay, we've got these people. Where shall we go together? <laughs> and then that's, and, and progressing with that, I really like that organic. And And I'm glad you made the distinction because I think, even though the what's happened over time looks very similar to what might be happening in other places, I think the process is very interesting. Like you say, your journey is very different to David, who was looking for a physical space and then built that, uh, whereas this, this is a completely different process, even though the end result might to an outsider look a bit similar.
2: Yeah, I think the the end result as an artifact does end up looking similar, but the way people interact with it are, are is pretty different. Yes. Um, and one of the biggest outcomes that comes from a process that's more more participatory where the community Helps create the space. Should they even want the space? I mean, think about it this way. You know, what would Indie Hall today look like if we were not a bunch of laptop-bound workers? What if we were a bunch of farmers mm-hmm. or something like that? Like, we wouldn't look like a shared office. We'd look like something else. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who runs a community-based band rehearsal space. In Fort Collins, Colorado, and it's so interesting to sort of reverse engineer what she's built there, and it's it's adjacent to not physically adjacent to, but like conceptually adjacent to a very uh, successful small co-working space in Fort Collins that she runs called Cohere, and Cohere Bandwidth, which is the band rehearsal space, operates very differently, but culturally. Is all about this sense of participation and ownership. And and, and the thing about indie hall and bandwidth and things like it is that when the community comes together to make that space possible, it's no longer a space that they go and they use, they consume. And when they're no longer using it anymore, they leave it behind. And it's just you know it was a resource. It was it was a tangible. Um, it was it was a utility. Um, and in some cases, in in the worst cases, it's treated like a commodity. We go for the complete other end of the spectrum where this is yours. Like we treat this physical space like a blank canvas of sorts that you can make it yours. And it doesn't need to be anything in particular other than the best thing for you and the people around you. And that's not always the easiest thing to navigate, but what it does do is it gives me the ability as the person who is quote unquote in charge. Um, and you know, for when you're, when you're leading a community, if you think you're in charge, you're usually fooling yourself. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty pretty, pretty good about being honest with myself that I'm really only in charge when something goes wrong.
1: Oh, I love that.
2: <laughs> you, know what you know what I'm talking about, right? So yeah. so, so in, the, in reality, it's more about unlocking potential and inviting people to contribute and participate and make it their own. And that's when things shift from being a commodity where they're comparing the utility to the utility, the cost to the cost, the space to the space, the location to the location. We have people who travel over an hour from Lancaster, Pennsylvania to to Indy Hall three days a week. There are co-working spaces in Lancaster, but there's a reason they come to Indy Hall. And a lot of it comes down to that sense of, they say, we talk about community, and even community becomes commoditized at a certain <laughs> point when it becomes referred to as a group of people in a room. Yeah. Do those people actually invest in each other? Do they look after each other? Do you feel like you're looked after and cared for? And do you feel like that place that you share with those people is actually collectively something that you... Ha- could have some sense of control or ownership over uh and and if the answer is yes you'd be amazed at what people are willing to do and how far they're willing to travel and how much they're willing to contribute of themselves and and to their peers to create things that you absolutely couldn't create if it was you operating a space even at very good margins uh you know it's made our business more resilient because it's made our community more resilient and i think that's super super key
1: I am going to 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 skip some points <laughs> that I had here in, in in front of me um because I think you're com- you're you're talking about something that that really uh resonated with me when I first heard you talk about it and now you're talking about it again is you say you've got people who are traveling for quite a while, when, when a lot of the kind of, um, uh, flexibility in work and stuff, all the kind of things I'm, I'm talking about a lot of the time is, re- is asking people to not have to travel and to reduce commute. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have people who want to go through that, um, to go to work. You talked in one of your uh, episodes, episode 20 of the Coworking Weekly show on uh, one of your podcasts, um, you talked about how the essence of coworking is so interesting uh, and and there is an opportunity there to take that essence and see how we can change the workplace, uh, the more traditional workplace to somewhere where people want to go to. What are your thoughts on that, Alex?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, here's what it comes down to. And and I draw a couple of really important distinctions. One is that the world world in general, and specifically the world of work, whether we're talking about small businesses, medium businesses, large businesses, huge corporations, um, whether we're talking about distributed teams uh, or or people that are physically located next to each other, whether we're talking about for-profits, non-profits, all of those things have something in common. And the thing that they have in common is that people need to work together to accomplish a goal, right? That's what work really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of other ways to abstract it. But at the end of the day, work is in place to accomplish a goal. And when we're talking about teams, whether they're small, tight-knit teams or large, you know, fragmented corporate infrastructure – People need to work together in order to accomplish a goal. And whether they know they're working together or not is a whole other story. But here's the interesting thing. All of those different kinds of organizations around the world have way more examples where people need to be working together in order to accomplish the goal, but they don't work together. And in some cases, they work against each other. They cut each other down. They're in direct competition with each other. Like The system is stacked so that people work in ways that are not only not to their own advantage, but to the disadvantage of the people around them. They're not adding to each other. So you've got these these interactions where people need to work together, but they don't. <laughs> In all different kinds of ways. And then you've got a thing like Indy Hall and, and lots of other co-working spaces around the world that are full of people who don't need to work together, but they do. And I think the space between those two things is where where we really need to be exploring. And a lot of it comes down to motivation. A lot of it comes down to human psychology. A lot of it comes down to trust. And I think trust is the key. And if I look at one of the things that we've gotten very good at over time and increasingly uh, had to study carefully and figure out what works and why and what doesn't work and why, it's how trust is formed and destroyed, for that matter, in the workplace, and when you don't trust your coworkers, and when your coworkers don't trust you, or when you're set up in a position where you are actually being encouraged to distrust or say things that would make you distrustful, I was talking with somebody last night who um, was interviewing for a position, and he was telling me we were just going through like a, a coaching session on mm-hmm. on on interviewing for jobs and basically how to sell yourself. Um, and, and he said, you know, at the end of the interview, which they were pretty impressed by, they asked him a really weird question. And they said, you know, why are you better for this position than any of the other people that have applied? And when you get a question like that, you know, take a second and pause and think how terrible of a question that is, because it's asking you to cut down potentially one of your peers or friends. Mm-hmm. What if, what if we go in with the assumption that we're all qualified, what if we're all equally qualified, the question is, is can is there something that I can do and show you that makes you trust me that I can actually get the job done? That's how you sell yourself in a job. That's how you sell really anything is you need to prove to somebody that you understand what they're trying to accomplish and you have to earn their trust, A, by proving that and then B, that you can actually follow through and deliver. So uh, so let's not go too far afield with that and really think about what what does that mean in the context of a co-working space and things that we should be learning from co-working that could be applied outside of co-working. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that in most workplaces you don't really get to spend time getting to know somebody until work is already underway. There's no real like dating period mm-hmm. in getting to know your coworkers yeah. and I I feel we're fortunate that in my career I've had both jobs where that was the case but i 've also had jobs where there was a sense of camaraderie and almost a sense of family where I knew who my coworkers were even before I was working directly with them, and that when time came to come to work together on something, it happened on top of the foundation of a trusted relationship and I think that 's the thing that 's missing from most of the world of work is it 's based on anything but a trusted foundation of a relationship. And and another sort of analogy that I I like to use to really illustrate the difference between the world of work and really everything else. um, I think the best way to maybe describe is a story. I did a a workshop series in uh, South Korea a couple of years ago. And at the end of the workshop series, talking about how we build trust at Indy Hall and some of the uh, details and implementations, and then the outcomes of what happens when we actually do it. um, A woman asked me, you know, I get everything you're saying; it makes total sense. Um, And remember, we're also we're in in an Asian uh, Asian country with an Mm -hmm. Asian culture where trust is already, I think, more baked into business interactions than um, than a lot of uh, uh, at least North American and even some European business practices. Um, So they're already very trust and relationship based. But even then, she said, "You know, I'm hearing everything you're saying about how we build trust and relationships and how that leads to better productivity and outcomes and collaboration, all those things." But all of that makes sense on a personal side. What about business? And I said, what about business? And she said, well, it's different. And I said, says who? Hmm. I mean, it says you. And I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying you've decided it's different. And culturally, maybe we've decided it's different. But if we take a second and analyze and say, is it actually different? Are we actually different people when we're working versus when we're not working? Some people choose to be, and that's fine. But if you're doing it instinctively instead of by choice, I would urge you to take a really close look at that. And the, the way I look at it is, is where and bring this back to trust. Trust happens. Um, let's let's put it on a spectrum. It's not that I trust you or I don't trust you. It's I don't think you're actively trying to screw me. <laughs> <laughs> right? To, I trust you. And I think a lot of business happens in what I would call like a negative 10 to zero range where my decision on how I work with you is based on how little I think you're trying to screw me over. Right. It's, it's the worst case scenario is you're definitely trying to screw me over, but I think I can protect myself from it. That's why we have so many legal documents and all these other things like, right. That's, that's where work starts from. And in the best case scenario for a lot of people, work happens at zero where I know that you're not trying to screw me mm-hmm. but that's as good as it gets meanwhile in our personal relationships it starts at zero with sort of a i don't believe you're trying to screw me we don't hang out with people who are trying to you know mess with our lives <laughs> <or avoid>. well, <laughs> some people do but but then there, but then there's the positive 10 spectrum where it's things like i would trust you to borrow my car Or I would lend you my favorite book. Or if I've got kids, maybe I would let you watch my kids or I let your kids play with my kids. Like the things that are very personal to us. And the question that I can't help but ask is what would happen if we started conducting business the way we conduct our personal relationships? Where we make a business decision not just based on the fact that I don't think you're trying to screw me, but based on the fact that we've actually built trust in a positive direction. Would we do less business? I mean, on a on a micro scale, perhaps there's a lot of business deals that I turn down because they op- they're coming from that z- negative uh, ten to zero range, and for me, it's not worth the hit to productivity, the hit to happiness, the hit to the ability to collaborate and operate with someone who I trust. I just get more done that way. And even though I turn down a lot of business that way, I end up working exclusively with people who I do trust. And those projects are more fruitful. They're more profitable. They require less cognitive overhead. They're less stressful. I'm happier. And even in the worst case scenarios of those projects, where the project goes totally haywire based on things that are completely out of my control, we're still left with a friendship. And we got to go through that together, (laughs) which is a super optimistic way to look at things. And a lot of people struggle with that. But that's what happens when you operate in business and in the workplace from a place of positive trust. So what I'm interested in is what can we do, what can we learn from experiences like a co-working space that help people feel trusted, and be trusted. It's not just, I mean, a feeling is super, super important, but actually it has to be followed through as well. How can people feel like they've got trust in their coworkers and their peers before they ever have to work with them? And there's so many ways to explore that, so many ways to apply it. It just really comes down to trying a couple. Um, and, and a lot of that can come down to, and you were, you were at the, 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 um, people at work summit that we hosted a month and a half ago or so. And one of the talks was from, um, uh, a, a guy in uh, who used to work for electronic arts, now he's part of this educational program in Ubud in Bali, um, and now he's helping run a co-working community in Bali as well called Ubud. And Chris was talking about how they start their meetings with gratitude, with taking a little bit of time to get to know where everybody's at and be thankful. And that sounds a little like woo-woo or whatever. <laughs> But it doesn't need to be. It can simply be a little, a small act of recognition that shows I'm paying attention and I appreciate you. And those small acts add up to tremendous amounts of trust. And if you find little practices like that, and it doesn't need to be that. You find something that works for you and you do it Every time, every time you sit down with your team before you dive into the agenda, the itinerary, Mm -hmm. take a little time as a team for you as a team to build and or potentially repair those personal relationships. Watch your work improve. Watch your output improve. Watch your happiness improve. Watch your desire to go into work and spend time with those people improve. And everything starts to change.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) Which bit do I pick up on? So from what you're saying also, it's really coming back to we are people. Uh, and we're that's coming,
2: 100% right. We are, yeah. we are people. In work, we forget that we are people. Yes. And I, that is the problem. That yeah. is absolutely the problem. Yeah.
1: And the the comment that you got from the, the person when you ran the workshop in South Korea about, uh, um, yeah, that's personal, what's business, also reminds me of something that came up at this um, social workplace conference on Friday where somebody, I think they had a kind of a, um, definition of co-working or of something like that. And they brought they said, uh, a, a place where I can bring my whole self into work and thinking about what the co-working atmosphere is offering us is one uh, probably because especially and I'm thinking about the beginning of the relationships because this is something I hadn't thought about before Alex the the fact that when we go into work you're right we just have to get on with the work but we might not have a history we might not even know whether we can work together because one thing is an interview to see whether you're right for the job. The other thing is to to spend <laughs> a lot of time working intensely with other people. Um, and when we when we come into the into the co-working space, because we don't have that in need for that intense interaction right from the beginning, we can very slowly bring ourselves to work. We don't. Maybe we're a bit less uh, worried about what people think of us. We're a little bit more relaxed. Um, we can because the relationship is going to start to be a personal relationship rather than a professional relationship. Just allows us to to bring ourselves more into into work um, as long as we find the right space. Also, and space I don't mean building but community. That's right. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. Head spinning. That's uh, <laughs> <so it's> <laughs> nice. Head <laughs> spinning for you the morning, for me, right in the afternoon. <laughs> so, um, right. I, I, I don't know where to take this conversation because it's already so high level that uh, anything might, um, might change it. So, I will ask you for the the wider uh, context. So you, you, from what I understand and what you told me before, you travel quite a lot and you do make a conscious effort of seeing how these communities are evolving in different countries and stuff. What are you seeing as um, either the main problems, opportunities, successes or trends uh, that are happening?
2: Interesting. So the, I mean, there's a lot of patterns that, that are fascinating to me. Some are fascinating because they're frustrating. Some are Mm -hmm. fascinating um, because they are are just interesting. I think the biggest one, though, is that the co-working, if we're going to just talk specifically about Mm. co-working, is as it's main, it's becoming mainstream. Like, yay, that's a good thing. And let's recognize that, you know, something that's less than 10 years old is now mainstream vocabulary. It's in the press. It's on people's tongues, like parents and grandparents know about it. They may not understand it, but they know that it exists, that's a good thing. The flip side of that is it's big enough uh, that We're, I think we're trying to describe lots of things as if they're the same thing Mm. and they're not. And I mean, what you're describing at the social workplace conference that you were at last week sounds like there were people in the room who you resonate with, but there's also people in the room talking about things you're like, this is not the co-working I, I know. Mm. And, and I think that's a, a really interesting challenge and problem facing the, the co-working world, the co-working industry right now, where, you know, we have this one word, co-working that means different things to different people and no real delineation to know who means what. And I, the comparison I like to use is the restaurant industry. When I say the word restaurant, how much do you really know about what you're going to get? Mm. You will probably pay some amount of money and you'll probably receive some kind of food, but that's about as much as you know. Uh, and, you know, the the reality is, is the restaurant industry has the benefit of different kinds of cuisine, has the benefit of different kinds of uh, experience, you know, fine dining through fast casual, through fast food, and and you know the difference between you know McDonald's and Olive Garden and a local restaurant group and a local chain and you know any any other number of things. The they all coexist. Mm-hmm. They coexist really really well, and in fact, a lot of times they add to each other. I might eat at all of those different kinds of restaurants depending on. The time, the style, the mood, who I'm with, how much I want, how much I want to spend, and the problem right now with co-working is that we only have the word co-working, and yeah. so, uh, you know, I I think that there's some kind of uh, there's some anxiety in the industry <laughs> about, and I, there was a big article on Shareable.net a couple of weeks ago after um, the big North American co-working conference because a lot of people felt like co-working had been co-opted by the real estate industry, yeah. which. I mean, right or wrong, they 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 feel that way, and I acknowledge that. The issue is is that you're suggesting that they uh, that something could be co opted, um, as if you own it, and it's not something that you own. Nobody does. So I think with well, the problem right now is that people need to start getting comfortable with defining their little corner of what it is that you do. Don't worry about what other people are doing or what other people are calling co-working. It doesn't actually hurt you. It might be frustrating, it might be distracting. <laughs> um, in fact, it probably is kind of distracting, but you're letting it be distracting. Mm. They're not doing anything wrong. And if people are doing something that's different from the way that you're doing co-working, the way you like coworking, that's fine. You don't have to participate in their version. I mean, think about it this way. A city like London or a city like Philadelphia, huge city, lots of neighborhoods. There are neighborhoods that I like more than others. Does that make the neighborhoods I don't like bad? Does it mean that nobody lives there? Of course not. That's silly. Does it even mean that those neighborhoods are in competition with each other? Well, kind of, but not really. So, I, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to a young industry where people don't always have the confidence to look at something that's not deeply, like not immediately resonant with them. And instead of reject it, say, okay, that's there. That's cool. And let's, let's move on. Um, I, I think that's a really, really interesting pattern that people are, are up in arms, they're defensive. And the thing that maybe is the most interesting um, on a sort of meta level is this is an industry that has in many ways pioneered workplaces where people can show up and be their best selves. Like we were just talking about before, we don't ask you to be a certain way. We just ask you to be your best self and yet we can't seem to do that with our peers. right? That's a little weird. And I think it's a little, a little contradictory and, uh, and, and, and potentially problematic. And, you know, sometimes people push it back, back on me and say, yeah, but you know, when you're on Twitter and you're ranting about, you know, people, you know, doing things wrong. And I said, it's I'm, a, I'm doing it to prove a point because otherwise <laughs> people don't see that there's even an alternative. I'm not telling somebody that what they're doing is wrong. I'm pointing out the patterns in the problems and the mistakes that people make, and." I'm saying what other people aren't willing to say out loud, but is absolutely factual. I'm not calling somebody out on their shit just because I feel like it. I'm calling it because like, this is a repeated pattern. Do you notice this too? And the responses that I get are, yes, I did notice this too. And my hope is that the people do notice that and correct that pattern. And a lot of the time, a great example of this, um, one of my... Um, like where, one of my favorite pastimes, and that's not true, I way better pastimes <laughs> than this, is when I remind people who are posting to Twitter, or Instagram or other websites to make sure that the photos of their co-working spaces have people in them.
1: Ah, uh, yes.
2: And mm. it, you know, we work really hard to make sure that mm. press doesn't go out without fo- with photos that are, that are you know empty desks. Like photos of empty desks for a co-working space, literally the worst thing you can do. And it's, I, not, I don't care that you actually do it. It's that people don't think. And I want to go, did you notice that all of the photos are empty? You know, and I'm sure you took them because it was the easy thing to do on the day before your opening to run around with a photo or with a camera and take a bunch of photos. But what if you took 30 minutes out of your day and invited some friends or your members over to sit and get some work done and have and take some photos, even just iPhone photos, the quality of the photo doesn't matter. It matters what's in them. Show life, show how people are interacting with each other. So I like shining the spotlight on that stuff just to remind people That, hey, there's something that you could be doing and you're not. And ultimately, it's your choice whether or not to do it. And if you do it and you succeed, great. If you ignore my advice and you succeed anyway, that's great too. All I care about is that more people have access to this stuff. And then people have the kind of experiences that they want to have. What breaks my heart is every single week and multiple times a week, I get emails from people in cities around the world saying, Alex, I've read a bunch of your stuff. Indie Hall sounds amazing, but there's no Indie Hall in my city. How do I find a co-working space that's not just full of startup people pitching each other? Uh, I want a place where I can actually get to know people. I want a place where there's relationships. I want people who think like me or can help me be better. You know, that – the, the everyone is making these carbon copy startup driven co-working spaces all around the world. And they're, they are in direct competition with each other because they are commodities. They are carbon copies, commodities of each other. And, and they're, I don't want to say they're terrible, but the people there are people out there who want something that they cannot find. Hmm. And the fact that in almost every city around the world, and I know that sounds like a hyperbole, but I mean it. Almost every city around the world, there are people who are looking to connect with people in their own backyard in all different kinds of industries that work in all different kinds of ways. If you want to build a community in your city, you should try to find people who share common goals to you and bring them together and see what happens next. If you follow that path, you're going to create something that is of value in your city. I guarantee it. it's going to make you better. It's going to make those people better. It's going to make your city better. That's what I that's what I think we really, really need to see more of more of that less rent a desk for your startup before it goes out of business.
1: Yeah, well, I, I have huge concerns, and that is something that we've really shown on this conference at the end of the day. Um, so I agree there's lots of real estate now with shared office spaces and um, again, I, I completely understand what you're saying. Let's not get hung up on who's calling what co-working. Um, but at the same time, I'm seeing that the the spaces that are, in effect, shared office spaces, which are glossy and all of this, and, and which a lot of the time are, are replicas of what we're used to working when we're working in a multinational, for example. So already I found that quite interesting that some places are trying to replicate what we think of as that other traditional workspace. Um so, so there's 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 that. Uh, but my main concern is exactly what you said: is that, especially in London, there is so much emphasis on providing a space for startups to do all these things that you mentioned. Where are the artists going? My husband uh, uh, is in in a space uh, in an artist space, and the lease will run out very very quickly. Uh, they they can overlook a whole. Empty building that used to be a market, they can overlook all this space, but they are at some point going to have to look for an artist space because everywhere is being set up to house startups and support startups. Um, so I think what's interesting is, is that, is that, uh, um, well, as always, because the spotlight is on this at the moment also, yeah. it's just where is it going to go?
2: So, I mean, it would be very easy for me to say something like, you know, when they zig, I zag. And while everyone's doing startups, I will find ways to do everything but startups. But the truth is, is we were never into startups. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I didn't, I was not into that hype 10 years ago. I haven't been into it. And when the whole thing comes crashing down, we will be immune for the large part to it because the vast majority of our members are not startups. Um, and I don't want to turn this into a startup bashing no, session. No, but but to your point is where are the spaces for anyone else? Yeah. I just think people are lazy, honestly. Mm-hmm. People most co-working spaces are carbon copies of another co-working space that they saw. Mm-hmm. Not a intentional discovery of a community of people who need a place to gather. And if the exact same person put the exact same resources into creating a place to gather for a community that already existed or to bring a community together that didn't already exist and then together build a home for them, work together to build a home for themselves, we would end up with so much more diversity of co-working spaces and I think more resilient business models within them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, again, it's, it's my, the the playbook, the story that I described earlier, it's, I think the reason people leap to space and start the reason people leap to startups are ultimately the two two of the same thing, right? Where they choose the easy, most obvious thing Mm -hmm. and and without ever asking a question about the less obvious things, right? So real estate is straightforward because it's concrete. Community is complicated because it is not. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is just because you get the real estate thing sorted out first doesn't mean you don't have to later figure out the community thing. And the reality is if you're going to have to figure out the community thing either way, why would you want to do it when you are under the pressure to pay your monthly rent or mortgage or whatever it is? Um, Why would you do it when you're under pressure to put butts in seats? Right? If you've got to do it before or after, do it without the overhead. You're going to get better results. That is just practical, tactical fact. <laughs> so yeah. people are attracted to what is easy and obvious and what is glitzy and what is covered in the media, and that creates mistakes in literally every industry. So I don't think that's unique to co-working. I think it's unique to a young, inexperienced industry. Um, I think a lot of the problems that co-working is is facing on the business side of things, you know, the, the smaller indie spaces that struggle, for instance, are not struggling because of co-working mistakes. They're struggling because of business fundamental mistakes. So one thing that I would like to see more of is business fundamental education for new co-working space founders, that even if you've got the community thing down pat, that you understand the value and the operations of what you're doing so that you can run it like a business. Because here's the thing that again, breaks my heart is when people, put all of the hard work into building a community, be these people that connect with each other, that are valuing each other. Like they've created the best scenario possible, but they do it in a way that is unsustainable. And then in a few years either they run out of money or they have to go do something else and the thing can't carry on without them. And now they've built this community, they've brought these people together, but they it has to go away because they've chose a path that was unsustainable from the start. And when we started transitioning Indy Hall from this more ad hoc gathering plus an email list into something that was structured enough to be able to take money and build a piece of physical infrastructure and in, in, in that being a shared workspace for us i we my partner and I looked at this and said, "How do we create a model that is as and granted, you can't predict all the potential futures, but we want to future proof ourselves. We want to make it that so that when the community is strong and growing. That it has all of the resources it needs to continue to be strong and growing. That it's not going to grow and implode in on itself. That it doesn't – if it's not growing, that's got to be okay too, right? So the, the need to add more people in order to stay afloat is a problem. Right. And yeah. it's, it's a problem in that you're, you're not, you're, you're dealing with churn, you're dealing with high turnover. Um, if your co working space is a high turnover business, I would suggest that you take a good hard look and say, is that actually th- the best thing mm-hmm. you could be doing? And what would be different if most of your members were not leaving every 30, 60, 90 days? Um, having members that are a part of your, I mean, we have members that have been a part of Indy Hall for 10 years, mm-hmm. right? Nice. We our, our are, av- our average membership lifetime is close to four years. That's our average. That means there's people that are less, but that means there's people that are more than that as well. Mm -hmm. So think long-term. Don't think how much value can I get out of a desk. Think member lifetime value. How much value can a member create both for the business, for themselves, and for each other? And that's a really, really different way of thinking about business than this short-term quick hit, rent the desk, rent a conference room, rent, rent, rent. Like rent, is I don't want to say it's a dirty word but it's a broken mindset it's a transactional mindset and it undermines all of the other hard work that you do along the way
1: <laughs> right <laughs> good so so to support this and, and it's really interesting that because of course you're 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 always looking ahead and you are also looking at how to support those people who who are working like you said so hard at building these communities uh, and even building a, a co-working spaces um Tell the listeners a bit about the People at Work Summit, uh, which uh, yeah, which you run in in April.
2: So the People at Work Summit was uh, was sort of born while Adam, who's one of my teammates, and I were coming back from a conference in uh, in Italy and thinking about all of the people who don't get to go to those conferences, right? So we're on a very short list of, and I'm so fortunate and thankful for the fact that we do get to travel and see people around the world doing things like what we do and make all make all these friends and and learn what's going on but the re- reality is is most people don't and it's for various reasons: of cost money, cost time. Um, some people have very, you know, based on where they live, travel is just difficult. Visa, you know, a visa and, and and passport requirements are, are difficult. Um, and also, if you're in the first two years of a co-working space, the ability for you to be away from it for a week or two is probably not very high. Um, and it's probably it's probably easier for you to be away from it than you think it is. But I understand the pain because I've been there. Of trying to imagine what it would be like to leave your coworking space, um, in the hands of your members for, for a week even, or even a few days could be uh, totally nerve wracking. So we, we thought, you know, what would it be like to create an event that A is the kind of co-working community learning experience that we want, but B, what if we did it online? What if we use the internet as our gathering place for uh, a couple of days and, you know, we've gotten really good at creating what we think is a real community experience where online. And it's not the same as a going to a physical conference. The goal is not to replace it. The goal is to create something that we'd never experienced before, but we thought could be valuable. And so we did that. And m- one of the things that we decided early on was we wanted this to be accessible to people around the world. And so um, in a fit of what might have been naive, <laughs> naive, saying, naivety and stupidity, we um, decided to make it a 24-hour event with speakers and attendees from almost every time zone which was a pretty amazing experience, um, a, a challenging experience to, you know, stay awake for 24 hours for sure. Um, but we, we, we connected a whole lot of people that otherwise would not have spent time together, both speakers and attendees. Um, I was so, so proud of and impressed by all of the speakers, yourself included Pilar. Um, the topics that were covered were less about the, uh, operational, and components of co-working in terms of physical space and more about the human side of co-working. So a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today mm. and and all of the themes, basically the goal was to talk about and it was called the people at work summit, right? It was not about the place to work yes. summit. It was the people. How do people interact with each other? How do people build trust? How do people collaborate? What are the challenges? What are the skills? What are the needs? and uh, and talk about that for a day and I'm very very proud of what we accomplished we will definitely be doing the summit again next year and we're working on some things uh, uh, throughout the year that'll be smaller and, and easier to both to produce and to to participate in um, for folks that either running co-working spaces people that are running uh, online communities similar to what you're doing with virtual Team Talk, which in a lot of ways is sort of like a virtual co-working space mm. um, so you know the folks that that are operating those communities, right? So there's people that are in them and are interested in them, but the people that are trying to make them grow and be better, the people who really are dedicated to making them the best they possibly can, we're really trying to create a space, uh, again, an emotional space more than a physical space, uh, for that kind of discovery, for that kind of dialogue. Um, and so what's fun is we get to try out a lot of our community-building playbook in a totally new realm, with a totally new community. And the, the two things that are really fun about that is, A, we get to see our own advice work for somebody <laughs> other than other people, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really nice to follow your own advice once in a while <laughs> and, and see what works and what doesn't and make adjustments and realize, what's been maybe missing from your message. So that's going to improve what we're able to share. Um, but ultimately, just trying to build this little corner of the ecosystem, like I said, for people who, um, who think like we do, who care about communities like we do, who want to build something that's great and to last uh, and to, to, to create a whole lot of value for, for small, individual, interconnected people running businesses of all different kinds.
1: Wonderful wonderful and uh, and lastly um uh, alex your, you how many podcasts uh, are you uh, doing at the moment or or <laughs> where can I mean, people at, listen at the to moment, at
2: the moment i'm doing yours <laughs> um, so so i've got a couple of things that, since if you're listening to this you're clearly into listening to podcasts so i have the co-working weekly show um, which is uh, a lot of conversations with uh, folks that uh, are on my team, with our members, with our community, with people in adjacent communities about the inner and the inner workings of the community side of co-working. We really focus a lot on how that, and also how it ties into the operational things. Um, if you're in, if you're a freelancer, an entrepreneur, small business person, um, wanting to get into the world of making products instead of just trading time for money, um, I have a, produ- a, a product business podcast with my business partner, Amy Hoy called Stacking the Bricks. Um, that's more business and entrepreneurship. And then a third thing that's not exactly a podcast, but is launching, uh, this week, which I imagine people will be listening to this, um, after, after the recorded date. Uh, but, um, uh, in the podcast realm. Um, so I've been trying to write a book, for a really long time. A lot of the things that we've been talking about here, the indie hall story, but in a lot more depth, Mm -hmm. people keep asking me, when are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? And the truth is, is writing a book is really freaking hard, Um, especially when you've got these sort of challenging stories with lots of, you know, depth and and nuance to them. And the written word doesn't always do it justice or at least in trying to write it. it's, It's not always easy to get it out. And so people have been responding really well to the podcasts and the, the guest spots like like this one. And so sort of had the realization, well, wait a second, telling a story doesn't need to be written. What if we recorded the audio? And so we're doing something that I don't know of, and I'm still looking for other examples of this in action. I've been calling it a reverse audiobook. book. Uh, so normally an audiobook is something where you've a book has been written and then either the author or a voice actor comes in and reads the text, uh-huh. right? Um, and uh, do you listen to audiobooks? Uh,
1: uh, not really. I've, I've got one of my own, The A to Set of Spanish Culture. But uh, no, I listen to loads of podcasts, but not audiobooks. I really love reading.
2: Okay, so I I listen to quite a lot of audiobooks. It's probably the fastest way for me to get through my ever-growing stack of <laughs> that I want to read. And my criticism of the audiobooks is is always it feels kind of unnatural to hear even even when it is the author themselves reading it. It just does not that people don't talk that way, yes. right? The written edited word just f- feels very different in in text. So, it feels kind of hokey and stilted and it's kind of tough to keep your brain engaged in it, I find. Meanwhile, podcasts are super engaging because this is how you and I would talk if we were sitting across the table from each other, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so we decided, what if we did an audiobook in reverse where we record, we, we outline, we structure the same way you would outline or structure to plan to write a book, um, but we would outline and structure for a conversation and then record the audio first. And then later we could go in and have the audio transcribed and edited into a, a print, a text book. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're doing an audiobook in reverse and it's called The First Ten. Uh, and that uh, is actually coming out tomorrow on uh, June 16th. It's a, an 11 chapter story of the first, um, basically the first 10 community members is, is sort of what we advise people when you're trying to build you know build your first community. Don't focus on all the community members and definitely don't focus on the space. Just focus on those first 10 people that really want to be around each other. So this is the story of how I found our first 10 where that came from, how we did it step by step. Um, Every chapter is both a part in the timeline as well as a set of specific lessons and approaches that you can go and apply, whether you've got your own co-working space uh, already up and running or you're trying to get one up and running. Even though it is sort of our origin story, it's very much centered around the lessons that we learned while we were sort of building ourselves up. So these are the same lessons that we apply every single day now, 10 years later, to help us stay successful as well as they were the things that we used when we when we first got started. So I'm really 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 excited about this project. Um, I actually haven't been this excited about a new project in a really long time. I don't know if you can tell. Um, so so um, if people want to check that out uh, uh the, the website for that is the Indie Hallway, as in you can do this a lot of ways, but this is the Indie Hallway of doing it, uh, slash 10, IndieHallway.com slash 10. Um, and there's a bunch of preview chapters up there. You can sign up to get the fir- the entire first chapter for free. Uh, and, uh, and if you're into it and want to pick up a copy, that'll be available uh, starting after tomorrow.
1: Fantastic! Great timing. Then I'm not sure when the podcast will come up, but definitely not too, um, not too too much, not too late, too much later after that. You've got cool. me tongue tied. Very, very cool. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Alex, I think that's a great uh, a great way to to wrap up with. Uh, We've been listening to your story, your thoughts, and now if we want to uh, go even further into your story, we've got something that we can download immediately. Such is the wonderful internet. (laughs) Any other uh, ways in which people can uh, get in touch with you?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I've got, uh, I'm on Twitter. Alex Hillman, at Alex Hillman on Twitter. Um, I also have a, my personal website uh, is dangerouslyawesome.com. That's where I've been writing about the things we've been doing with Indie Hall for the last 10 years. Oh. Lots of essays, lots of um, stories and descriptions, and you can go check that out. Uh, and I have a weekly newsletter that I don't really send weekly. Uh, <laughs> at, uh, coworkingweekly.com, you can, you can sign up for that as well. But the, the, all of those things sort of end up back in the same place.
1: Wonderful. Well, I hope you have a lovely time. What's left in the cafe, then back at Indie Hall, then back in the cafe. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Alex.
0: Thank you, Pilar. That was a really fun episode to record, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, there at the end, I was talking a little bit about The First Ten, the audiobook that we put together for people that are building communities, co-working and otherwise, following our story along. And I've been getting some amazing responses from people that bought early access copies of the book, and I wanted to share one of them with you. It was from my buddy George Cuevas down in Miami who uh, has been following what we're doing and has actually been building his first 10 alone and it was really fun to hear his reaction as he sort of put the pieces together realizing why the things that he was doing were working and where he might be going next. Uh, George said, you know, kudos on the book. You've put together a resource of legendary status. I appreciate that it's not just a how-to book but a challenge to be a person dedicating to making people better. That's gold and it is gold. That's exactly what I want people to get from this book. So thank you, George, for the kind comments and I hope other people are getting getting. getting a lot out of the book as well. And since you've listened all the way to the end, I want to give you a $10 off discount. And as a reference to our friend PLRRT, if you go to theindiehallway.com and use the code virtual, not distant in the checkout, it'll take 10 bucks off your copy of the book. So grab a copy today. I hope you enjoy it and shoot me an email and let me know what you got out of it. Thanks. And I hope you have a great week.